And thank you, ladies and the band, everybody, for that last song. <clears throat> so in the first service, there's a fine line. There's a fine line between setting the tone for the rest of the service and making it unachievable. Like it's just totally out of reach. And they, uh, they came to that line and just blew past it. Blew past it. So thank you guys so much for um, uh, creating the high point of our service this morning already. Lord, um, we're, just, we're just grateful for you guys. Thank you. And for all of us who are engaged, yeah, there you go. That was a good idea. I should have thought of that. All right, so here we go. Psalm 127, starting in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Um, I know that for some people that concept um, is troubling, the thought that you're not in control, that God is the one who has the final say in all things, that though we're building a house, if he's not building it, we're wasting our time, that even if we guard a city, if he's not the one guarding it, we're wasting our time. And we're about to study again a little more the man of Nehemiah, who is of, of everyone in all of scripture, with the exception of Christ, the person who understands this principle, I think, better than anyone, anyone. Um, his ability to take the truth that we have a job to do, to build a city, to watch the walls, whatever it is, that we can plant and we can work and we can water and we can fertilize, but only God can make something grow. And he takes those principles like no one else. He never sees a competition between our faithfulness and God's faithfulness. It's one of the things I love most about Nehemiah. It's why I think he's maybe one of the greatest leaders in all of history. As he sees this and he says, we posted guards on the wall and we prayed to God. And those two, he never sees those two concepts in competition with each other and neither should we. For me, it is a huge relief. Um, I am really good at work avoidance, at responsibility avoidance. I'm gifted at it. And so when I can delegate something and give it to somebody else, I don't have to worry about it. And when I can say it's my job to work and I get that and it's my job to do whatever, but how it turns out is not my problem, that's just less stress for me. I can, we can do what we're going to do and we're going to come back to this by the end. I'm going to actually answer the question, what, what if and we're in the middle of a capital campaign and we don't receive the pledges or the giving that we need to accomplish what we think needs to be accomplished? We'll get there by the end. But this passage is what unites that idea for me. You've got in your uh, aisles or in the rows, there's some prayer bookmarks there for you. We put those out every week or two um, as we're going through this as an encouragement to pray for your, that your family could get, take that. Pray together. They're, they're simple, easy prayers. No matter who you are and what your prayer experience is, kids or adults, um, you can pray these prayers and, and be a part of this uh, unification, this process that we're going through as well. We'd love for every family, including kids, to take one. And this is a special week for our campaign. I'm going to talk about that also as we get into this, a special week for it. We're going to learn a lot this week, hopefully. Um, and so if, you're, if you know you're planning on pledging at some point to this campaign, um, we're going to ask that you do that this week. For those of you, this is your first Sunday here in a month, and you're going, what are we talking about? Um, we're doing a, a capital campaign, and I'm going to unpack some more of it. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the student ministry building. And in fact, then last week, uh, we had a wonderful visual aid for the need for student ministry space. 
um, as we had 120 kids go through DNA, 140 show up. I think we got a couple of pictures. Um, there's the students, just students, and uh, and the leaders at DNA. And then I think we have another picture. This is all of them together. Um, that's more than we used to have people in the church um, just a few years ago. And so it's amazing to watch what God is doing um, with students uh, here at our church. It's, it's a fun and challenging time. If you want to go back a couple of weeks and listen to that as I introduce some of these concepts and this, in particular, this need, we talked about that. Also, we read through the entirety of Nehemiah chapter 3, which if you've never done is a real challenge because there's all these unrecognizable and unpronounceable names and places. Um, uh, but it was fun, and I will go ahead and just let you know I won't be doing that again today. So uh, you can be comforted in that. But we're at the stage now in this process of examining and re-examining plans and structures. And this keeps going, by the way. If you've ever been involved in something like this in your business or even in your home uh, building or whatever, as we brainstorm with architects and engineers and builders and designers, we're watching things adapt and change in real time. As you bring in more voices, as you include more people, of course that's going to be happening. And that's, that's healthy, that's good, that's a good thing. I know change is scary to some people. Even in the midst of change, more change is scary, but that's normal. Um, I would tell you, don't, don't let that freak you out or panic you in any way as we try to solve the challenges that we face. Um, and then having 140 students here last Sunday morning um, is just a reminder of how real this is and what a great celebration it is. So two weeks ago, we start talking through the last few years, starting in about 2016, we became a church and start moving forward um, towards, uh, towards where we are today. Um, and we focused on the ongoing conversation about student ministry space. And today I want to pick up that story. Um, so we know student ministry space was a problem. If you, if you remember where we were a couple of weeks ago, it was becoming an urgent problem after COVID. We had seen it becoming a, COVID, a problem before COVID, but then COVID, I guess in one way you could say, provided relief. I mean, there's got to be some good news and everything, right? But it was a, I know it's a tragedy for many, uh, many of us in America. It was scary and confusing for all of us. It was a crazy time. Um, but one thing it did mean is we didn't run out of student ministry space for a year and because no one was here. And so we were trying to, as we're trying to recover, we saw very quickly when we looked at the graphs two weeks ago, that they, that number, those numbers were recovering very quickly and were blowing past what we had expected. So as I pick up that story, we also realize the temporary buildings, which I referenced, which were outside, the portables that were out there, they're gone now, in case you've not noticed that. Um, and, uh, and, and that was a, they were giving up, they were, they were kind of giving up the ghosts. Um, the entire room bounced when anyone bigger than Rebecca crawled, walked across it. And since everyone, pretty much everyone's bigger than Rebecca, it meant everybody was, and we were, the whole building shook and all that kind of stuff as we were going through it all the time. Fortunately, that's when the grade school building was being completed um, when we did that capital campaign, and it had been built to handle grade school age ministry for years to come. So it had space in the interim for adult education. That's where if you were in a Sunday school class last hour, you were probably in that building. Um, it's where a section of the big room in there was divided up and our about two-thirds of our staff office in that little cramped space. Um, you saw that in the video a couple weeks ago. So all of this was rattling around in my brain a year ago, two years ago. As we're trying to recover from COVID, so we put a Next Steps team together to start talking. And adult ed is going to become a problem when children's ministry starts forcing adult ed out. We know that's coming. Office space for our staff is pretty awful or non-existent. Um, and so that's an issue. The foyer gets tossed in more and more this whole area out here, uh, the rest of this building other than this room, uh, more and more found more and more members of our senior citizen population, many of whom are founders of South Spring, even way back 
when it was First Baptist First Campus, many of them are having a tougher and tougher time navigating between buildings and, and walking the pathways and that kind of stuff. And so, oh, by the way, the field needs work out there after all this construction, and um, the foyer is too small for a church of our size now. You've noticed that. And so all of these things are running around in my brain. And let me just ask a question. How many of you have ever played a game called Rummy Cube? Have you ever played Rummy Cube? See a shine of hands? Okay, there's, there's enough of you, enough of you that I can get away with this, right? So the basic premise of Rummy Cube is everybody gets some tiles, you can't see it, kind of like Scrabble, but there's stuff going on out in the middle of the board, and on your turn, you can shift things around so long as you can make everything work, you're allowed to shift things around. Now, I may get an amen for my sister here, but I destroyed this game for our family. Me. I did it. I ruined it for the family. You can see her nodding her head over there, okay? Because what happened is I'd be down to like four tiles, and I would have, while everyone else was going, I would have done this, I don't know, like one of those scenes with, with people doing math in their head type of thing and figuring out all these solutions, and I would have figured out all the different things, and if I moved this and replaced this, and if I did that, and I did this, and I did and I got all these things done that I could do all these different pieces. It only took 10, 12 minutes for me to do all these, move these little pieces around, and I would get totally done, and I would have the same four pieces still left in my hand. <laughs> or maybe down to one piece, if I was lucky, down to one piece. And everyone's like, oh... You just messed up everything out there, and it took 10 minutes to do it. Other people went and got drinks, took naps, and I'm out there still, like, trying to do it. And everybody would get so sick of this, like, don't, Chris, you're not allowed to. And it was like, you lose if you can't solve it this one time. You get one shot at this, all that kind of stuff, right? That's how this began to feel to me as we started putting these teams together and we're like, okay, so we've got this building and this building. What if we move them over here and we do this over here and, and we could restructure this building and we could recreate this and maybe another portable and we could, and we get done and we would have these same four tiles left over. Adult education, student ministry, office space, and the senior citizens class, the four-year area. And then we would restructure. Okay, we're going to, what if we do this? And if we do, and if we, and we ended up with, at the end of that, same four tiles. And no matter how we ran it with our current facilities, we were running into the same things over and over again. And that team began to focus in on those things. Um, more and more of that. But it's a little stressful trying to make all those pieces fit. And we came up with several ideas. And we're asking, how do we avoid messing up our master plan? We showed that a couple of weeks ago. Maybe can we invest in the master plan? That would be awesome. Can we start building one of these and then change it later? Can we build it to be one thing and then later to go in and restructure it and make it be something else? Could this be offices? Could that? Could we office off property? We start asking all these questions. What about it? The whole time knowing, and this is significant. I want you to hear this. It's God's church. I, I, I can't really overemphasize the significance of that. It's not ours. We're merely stewards of it. Of course, that's true about everything in our lives. But, but there's something sobering about the fact that this is God's church. It, you feel it more at the surface when you're making decisions, or at least you should. You should feel it more at the surface when you go, this isn't just my home. This isn't just my business. By the way, I'm stewarder with my home and my family too. They're God's. And I'm stewarder with my business. It's God's. Stewarder with my job. That's, that's God's. But that, it, you just feel it more more closely, more viscerally when you're talking about the church. Keep in mind that nothing about the ministry of the church goes away while we're digging into this stuff. So all this stuff's running around in my head and trying to make all these different things work. Meanwhile, we're working through 1 Samuel. And there are people with broken marriages and special needs kids 
and marriages and funerals and, and life and the shepherding of leaders and the discipleship of the congregation and hiring staff. And none of those things go away when you start engaging with a project like this or a series of them. So you take ideas and you put them in the hands of some professionals and they start whittling down your options, which is one of their main jobs. And they come back with recommendations. So then we start putting together a team to start asking questions. What is this stuff going to cost? How do we talk to the congregation about it? Should we look at it like this? Should we look at it like this? How do we, how do we come at these congregations? How do we integrate a half dozen projects like this? Some are exciting. Some are the kind of things that don't get people very excited. How do I, and I mean me, how do I decide when to stop preparing to lead and lead? How do I know when to do that? How do I know when to not merely talk, but now act? And I'm in the midst of all of this stuff going on, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting to a certain point here, but I want you to be able to kind of put your brains there for a second as you think about all these pieces, because I want you to see the power of God's Word to speak into our lives. And so I want to create the, create the right place for the thinking. On, on top of that, so when I ask a question like that, when is it time to stop preparing to lead and lead? Those who know me well... No, if you're, if you're in the Myers-Briggs world at all, I'm an ENFP. Um, an ENFP, one of the things that's interesting about us is when it's time to lead, when it's time to act, buddy, we can act. We have no problem. Put us in a crisis, bam, we're ready to go. Is it time to do something? Let's just do it. We make a decision. But until it's time to act, we can stall making a decision forever. Right? Oh, we can always talk about it more, Right? That's, the, that's, well, we talked about it. That's a, I feel like I've accomplished, we talked about it. I feel like I accomplished something. Paul's always faithful to remind me. No, we, we haven't made a decision yet. We're just, we just talked about it, right? It is a, it is a, it's, it's, we just, we talk and we can talk. And I feel better because we talked and we're not, for me, things aren't done until it's done. There, it's not time to choose until you have no choice but to choose. You'd love all the conversations I have with staff like Rebecca. Rebecca's one of my favorites, but she likes deadlines. And so she'll say, hey, Chris, can you give me a deadline on this? This happened especially early on. And, uh, and I would go, I don't, I mean, when, when you get done with it, I assume when you're done, it'll be done. And it, it won't be done before it's done. And then it'll be done. So just, you know, when it's done. And she's like, no, I can't work like that. I need a deadline. And I kid you not, we had a conversation went like this. She's like, I need a deadline. I'm like, June 7th. And she goes, I don't think I can have it done by June 7th. June 14th. <laughs> She's like, okay, I think I have it done by June 14th. I'm like, then that's the deadline. <laughs> and I immediately ignored that piece of information like it meant nothing to me. And she probably had it to me by June 7th anyway, knowing Rebecca, right? And so this is a, that's, I am wired that way. We're not, where we're going on vacation is open to change until we arrive. Like it is, and I know for some of you, that just sends you into a panic. My wife is one of them, um, that it sends into a panic, right? She just either has to know all of it or none of it. Those are her two choices. Like, just don't tell me anything or I need all the things, right? That's me. Now imagine it's time for someone to step up and say, now it's time to lead, not just my business, not just God's church on next steps. And that is something I love to postpone. I love to gather more information. And this, by the way, this is not just personality. This is biblically sound. There's a reason for this that comes from that too. Look at what James 4.13 says. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, and we'll spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live 
and do this or that. So this is part of it. I, I take this very seriously. Where do I find example of trusting and preparing and working and leading in a multifaceted, multi-step series of smaller projects? Some that people, some people care a great deal about and others that other people feel a great deal about. And I want you to see that God is about to meet me in the story that I'm telling. God is about to meet me with his word. I want to make sure you can empathize a little, which is why I'm telling some of this. And you also understand how this goes in case you don't know about this. I want you to see how God can use his word to speak into our moment. It's a big deal to lead a church. It's intimidating to lead a family. Um, but this is the church. This is the bride of Christ. Can you take it seriously enough? Is it possible to take it seriously enough? I will answer to God someday for how I lead this church. Can I take that seriously enough? All of us who have served and taught and shepherded and been part of leadership board or taught classes or trained children, we will all answer for whether we did or didn't do those things. That's something we have to take super seriously. But I will tell you, as the chief under shepherd, which who thought that was a good idea? I can't imagine. But as the chief under shepherd of a church, if I'm ever tempted to wait and then wait a little longer and then wait a little more, you better believe that's there. So we meet and we pray and we ask. And here's what's another thing that's key. If you're tempted to fall into this mindset of, um, hey, you know what? I've just got some crazy ideas to throw out there. I want to encourage you to saturate that with prayer. This isn't about our crazy ideas. This isn't a, hey, I have an idea. I'm so clever. I'm so much smarter. I'm so much everything. Let me really challenge you on that. That's our temptation to do in situations like this, as if this was merely some little project we're doing in our backyard. This is God's church. And, and it's got to be something different than just our wisdom at its best, than just our vision at its best. That is insufficient for leading God's church. Um, I was asking God for a vision and an example, and it wasn't coming, and so I was waiting. Nothing else is going to give me the peace to be able to lead. And you can ask our team, you can ask Colson and Kim in particular, nothing was uniting a vision for my heart. And so we were still just talking and talking. And then, I, I, so how do I verbalize this project? And then one morning, on a Wednesday morning, September 7th, of this last year, I was doing a, a young leader's Bible study, and we were going through this Bible study. We were going through Nehemiah, and we'd gone through the two months before, we got through Nehemiah 1, and then Nehemiah 2, and this morning on September 7th was Nehemiah 3, and we read through Nehemiah 3, and I don't know if they remember it, but by the end of us reading through and discussing that over breakfast, something new had come alive in me as I realized something that was really important. This was the first time we've ever faced a challenge like this. But it was not the first time that God had faced a challenge like this. I know it's a huge shock, right? But it turns out God's done this. In fact, there's a whole chapter in which God does this, where he takes a multi-varied process with all these different steps, and, and he, he pulls people together with a leader that I was able to look at and go, how on earth do you pull this kind of thing up? I think Nehemiah, who must have written this after the wall was done, because he references people who hung gates before, and then later he's going to say the gates are not yet hung. So all of this must have been written afterwards. How do you unite people when projects are so varied, giving potential is so varied, and people's priorities are so varied? Don't worry, I'm not going to read the entire thing again. I already told you that I'm tempted to. 
Just enough to show that though this may be our first time to engage in this, it isn't his. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to show you some of the principles that jumped out at us that morning. 3.1, Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. I want you to remember the tower of Hananel. We're going to come back to that because that's actually super significant. But let's look at this visual up here of the Nehemiah's wall. So we start up here in the top corner at the sheep gate, okay? It's up here. And then there's the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel, which we'll come back to. But this is where our story of the building of the wall of Nehemiah begins, with the priests being the one who build the sheep gate and this section, okay? Now, a couple of reasons for that. Here's what's intriguing about that. One, um, you'll notice the sheep gate right up here. This is where it was right by the pool of Bethesda is over here and the temple is right here. Okay. So you've got this picture. The temple up there is in this big area of the temple here. And then you have the pool of Bethesda. So what they would do is the priest would bring sheep in and they would wash them in the pool of Bethesda. And then they would take them to the temple to be sacrificed. So who's going to be the primary user of the sheep gate? The priests. So it makes sense that the priests are the ones passionate about getting the sheep gate done right. That they're, they're going to say, like, this is a big deal to us. This is, this is right here on our front doorstep. We're going to be using this all the time. This is, the, this is kind of the principle of the person who makes the coffee probably ought to drink coffee, right? And so, and so the person who's going to be using this, you want that to be there. The, pers the, you know, the, the person who indicates we have donuts are going to be eating donuts. So I'm willing to do that for everybody. So that's a, it's just a sacrifice I take. This would be, they were dedicated. So we'll see this passage often. People are diligent to repair the sections of the wall nearest to their own lives. Nehemiah 3.23, look at this. There's several of these. I'm just picking one of them. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After, after them, there we go. After them, Azariah, the son of Masai, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. You see this all through this chapter, that people are repairing the thing right across from their homes or right connected to their homes. Well, of course, if the enemy's going to come through, they don't want it being right across from their front door. So they're passionate about focusing in on that. So let's say you're in part of this congregation and your passion is students. Your soul is the soul for students. You want them to have a place to come and invite their friends. Um, and you, we looked at those two weeks ago and you're like, man, that just fires me up. I can't wait to pledge to be a part of making sure we've got this space for our students. Maybe you're someone who you just, you interact with our staff all the time and you're like, we just have the best staff. We do, by the way. But you would say, we just have the best staff. It is, it is I interact with them and I think, I just, I love that. I love who they are and I love what they do. And it is high time. My passion is to help create a great working space for them. So like we have a design and I'll, again, I'm going to throw this up here and some of you automatically thinking, oh, that's the plans. No, they're not. Don't say plans. They're not. This is an artist rendering. Okay. This is based on a true story at best, loosely based on a true story. It may end up being very little like this. It may end up being just like this. This is just to start the design process for us to just create. So uh, I love the idea, the insula model that we see in Israel, Israel, the homes of Jesus' time period, where they had a large greeting space in the middle, and then little houses on the edge. And that's, that's, what, uh, that's what gets me excited, is the idea of doing that. 
These are little offices. They're like eight by eight. These aren't grand, some big grand office space. This is, you know, the majority of the work would be done in community out here. And then, and then when people need a place to go be alone and, be, and has, make things quiet and still so they can focus their attention is to have these little spaces. And if you're like, you know what? I love our staff and that's something that gets me excited. That's the section of the wall right across from my door. That's close to my life. That's what gets me excited. Well, good. We have that. Maybe you're someone who says, you know what, what we need to be doing, we've done such a great job over the last decade of really preparing our church to do great ministry with children, of, of having construction for that focus, having ministry that focus. And, and I think it's time now for us to pay a lot of attention to adult education, maybe adult Sunday school. It's time for us to support that as well. And you think, man, what would be cooler than like a building that has eight, uh, eight Sunday school spaces for adults, for example, that'd be focused so that when, as these adults are getting pushed out of the children's ministry space or just to get them out of the children's ministry space so that it can expand, that we would say, that's, you know what, that's what gets me excited is the emphasis on adults, especially adult Sunday school. That's how a church families can grow and they can grow closer together and they make lifelong friends there that, that stay with them for the rest of their lives that are still with them through trials and errors and, and that kind of stuff, making best friends. That's what gets you excited. Well, good, because that's one of the, what's one of the challenges that we're facing and that we're going to work to solve. Will they be two buildings or one? Where exactly will they be? Um, those are types of questions that we need architects and engineers to help us answer. We can't answer those with certainty yet. It'd be foolish to do so, uh, just like we've done with every construction project. But we know the office space would be super valuable now, and adult education in the next few years, we suspect, as the children continue to expand, to take that space over. Maybe your excitement is for our senior citizens and for the founders of the church and their investment, and you say, you know what, this foyer needs to be redone, and we can create a space specially for them where they're right here in the same building, and they can move from place to place more easily. That's what fires me up. Good. Because that's a section of the wall, too. And that's what began to come to me, is there's a section of the wall that's opposite your house in this project. I think, I think when we look at this, is it a whole bunch of little projects? Well, in one sense, Yes. Is it one big project meant to prepare us for the next generations of ministry? Also, yes. What section of the wall is opposite your house? I'll bet some part of it is. Something hits you where you live. Check this out. Here's another aspect. That began to make sense to me. Nehemiah 3.3, another prospect, another um, principle here. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its bars, its, its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Now, I admit, I have no way of knowing if hanging the fish gate is actually some kind of honor, but it doesn't sound like it. I mean, at least in my mind, I'm like, hey, I'm going to go work where all the dead fish are. That sounds to me like a lot of fun and a place of honor. I suspect it wasn't, but you know what? I'm, I'm willing to admit the commentaries are all pretty silent on whether or not this was an honorable thing or this was a challenging thing or or if there's any message in this in, from that perspective. Maybe it was a good, maybe it was awesome, right? Again, the, some of the anglers are going to be like, that'd be the gate I want to work on. That's good for you. All right, so, but they all the commentaries reference the significance of this one. Nehemiah 3.14, Malkijah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of the district of beth Hekarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Here's an important principle. Not every part of a job is as glamorous as all the other parts. Here we see, this is cool, we see a regional ruler who not only is he mentioned, but his father is honored because of his decision to hang and work on the dung gate. Here the Hebrew word trash, waste, ash, it certainly includes human waste and animal waste. 
In fact, do you know what region this is? Pull up the, the picture again. There's your dung gate down here. Not surprising, downhill. That the, the goes down like this, right? At the very base of the city is the dung gate. This section down here, so right here you have the, the Kidron Valley that runs down like this. And this section of that valley, anybody know what it's called? It's the Valley of Hinnom, which is where we get the word Gehenna. Gehenna is the Greek name Jesus uses to reference hell. It's the place of waste and trash. It's where things burn and there are maggots all the time. He references that as a visual image for what hell is um, when he teaches on this. It's an important part of theology. It's an important part of his teaching. The truth is, maybe not everything is as glamorous as everything else, but each of the projects matter. Each task matters. The wall isn't done until the gate has been hung on the dung gate. You're not done. Your city is still vulnerable until that's done. We find another principle played out in Nehemiah 3.13. Hanun, the inhabitants of Zenoa, repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as as the dung gate. What we see is that there are people, families, and groups who seem to have repaired large sections of the wall like this. Others, tiny sections, just a few feet or a single gate. You see leaders and servants serving. You see sons and daughters serving. You see some who seem very talented and some who don't seem very talented, or who don't, you wouldn't presume that they're very talented at hanging walls serving. Let me show you. Nehemiah 3.15, Shalom the son of Kol Hazay, the ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars. He built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. This is one of the hardest sections of the wall. It's a downhill section down through a valley. It includes a garden, a pool, and a gate. And this guy pulled it off. This is someone who's capable. He's, he's good at working with his hands. He knows how to lead a work crew, and he makes all this stuff happen, and there's an amazing credit given to him for all of this massive section of the wall that he does. Others, I assume, were not so good at stacking stones. For example, Nehemiah 3.8 Next to them, Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths repaired. Now, you don't think of people who work with little bitty hammers and little magnifying glasses hammering together bits of gold to make art with gold. You don't think of them as also the people who are going to heft around big rocks and stack them to make a big wall. But if goldsmiths weren't, didn't put enough of a question mark above your head, next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. I don't know how good a wall builder most perfumers are. I'm sure the, I'm sure the wall smells great, but, is a, <laughs> but how stable a wall is it? I've said before, I've always imagined Shalom, the guy from up top, walking down to the perfumer section periodically and being like, uh, okay, okay, we're all right. Just checking out. Make sure the perfumers aren't just you know, doing this badly. Here's the deal. When we look at this, once again, like I said, one thing's running around in my brain. Some can do more and some can't. Not everyone can do everything, and certainly not everyone can do everything at the equal levels. That's okay. Some did more, some did less. Sadly, the only criticism you get in this entire chapter is the one account of some people who refuse to do anything. Nehemiah 3.5. I mean, you knew this had to be in here. It's humans, after all. It's human beings. You can't have a chapter in the Bible that's all good news, right? Not when people are involved. 
Nehemiah 3.5, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Capital L. The Tekoites worked diligently. In fact, they repaired more than one section of the wall. But their nobles, some of their number, thought themselves just too important to bow, to stoop, to bend the knee or bow the neck. They're too stubborn. They're too important. I'm sure there's a great story here. I am sure if we could meet with them, <coughs> that they would love to justify whatever their reasoning was for why they didn't work. I'm sure they had something that seemed to make total good rational sense to them on why they knew better than everybody else on what needed to be done here. But what's wild is we'll never probably hear that, but for the sake of time, we will just note that they go down through history for two and a half millennia for not serving. Welcome to humans. It's just a bummer that their story is here at all. Here's the deal. Everyone can serve. Everyone can. Maybe, maybe they, they would say, I, I can't, we can't lift rocks. Okay. I'll bet, I'll bet if they'd gone to Nehemiah and said, we can't lift rocks, we're just going to sit here and pray all day. The Nehemiah, they would have gotten mentioned in here. And the Tekoite nobles prayed nonstop for the project. They weren't going to stoop to build, and I assume they weren't stooping to pray either. So you might think, like, how do I get involved in a project? I have no money. I can't do anything with capital campaign. Again, the money is not impressive, and it never is. That's one of the cool parts of this. We can build a wall, but unless the Lord builds it, we're laboring in vain. We need someone to be, we need people to be praying constantly. All of us need to be praying, and that is a real thing. I know our temptation, we talk about this among our staff sometimes, the temptation we, we think praying is preparing to act, but the truth is praying is acting. Praying is engaging in the greatest power that is out there. Maybe you can bring a good deal of money to bear. Maybe none. But faithfulness is always in the measure of obedience, not zeros. That's always the measure of faithfulness. I don't need to mention the widow who impressed Jesus. Not many people impressed Jesus, but she did by giving essentially nothing. And yet she's one of the few people who impresses him. The greatest disciples are diligent to give what we have. What we have in treasure talents, and time. The things that we're able to do, that what we're willing to give, that is what God has bestowed on us, much or little, knowing that the creator of all things has generously allowed us to be involved in his work. And that's how we have to see it. Now, can you see why reading through that chapter, I was so inspired with all the things spiraling and bouncing in my brain, all the rummy cube tiles that were going through my brain and realizing God's played this game. He's done it in a bigger, badder, much scarier way that required a whole lot more faith, and he's done it before, and he pulled it off, and he will lead us through this too. For further inspiration, I want to note a couple of significant, fun little facts. We could do Nehemiah for months, and especially Nehemiah 3, even. One is the people of Jericho. There's a section that says the men of Jericho came to build a section. Now, one, if you know anything about Israel, Jer the, the walk from Jericho to Jerusalem, it would be a nightmare. It's a long way, and it is a train wreck of a pathway. I mean, it is, it, is, it is wilderness and desert. It's such a steep path that when you go the other direction, your ears pop in a bus. Um, it's so steep and so hard. You're going from the Dead Sea up into the mountaintops. No one's going to want to do this, and yet these men made this walk so that they could then stack rocks. They marched all that way to stack rocks. But also think just for one second of the redemptive power of people from Jericho building a wall. How's that for cool? You got to know they loved that. 
Like, oh yeah, we get a chance to build one for a change? That'd be awesome. What are we famous for? Walls falling down. So we get to go build one. That's awesome. But here was my favorite insight, the Tower of Hananel. Meant nothing to me when I first read it. Here's the power of getting to dig into God's word and how he loves to reveal things. The section where the Tower of Hananel is mentioned is Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31 is a place where God is revealing to the prophet Jeremiah that he's about to do something brand new, something really different, a whole new covenant. His law would not be written on stone, but on human hearts. We believe that the church is part of the fulfillment of this new covenant. Listen, listen to the promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the rest of the chapter unpacks this further and then begins to give some signs of how you'll know that God is faithful to accomplish this. Here's verse 38. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The restructuring, the reason that the author tells the story of the tower being built from the sheep gate all the way back around to the tower is so that you would hear, and a good Jewish audience would hear, oh, God is faithful. He promised back at Jeremiah that there would come a day when we would rebuild this wall, including the tower, both ways, all the way around, and it's done. This would have been a huge celebration for them to, to experience this for them. A symbol of God's new covenant. But in all of this, I think the most important phrase in this chapter, the one that stood out to me the most, was this phrase, next to them. The phrase next to them appears like 28 times in this chapter. And here's what I found myself most inspired by as I'm thinking as a pastor. Is that what we read about, and I want you guys to hear this. What we read about in Nehemiah chapter 3 is that Nehemiah and the people build a community. And in the process, a wall shows up. He, they build a community. They are unified in this and they come together in this, and the community grows closer. You've got to imagine they knew each other's names. They all knew who all these people were. Oh, yeah, I remember when Hannah and I was building that wall, or when, when uh, Meshuka, whatever, you know, was building, like, I'm, oh, I remember that when that rock fell on us. Like, this whole, and, and they're, they're you know, walking around high-fiving each other every time they see this wall. And I don't know if you have that, if this place, for those of you who remember, has that effect on you, but it does me. When I pull in and I see what God did 20-something years ago, and you go, what is this? And then with these buildings or the ministries or when we see children come pouring out of those buildings next door at the end of the services and you go, what has God done? Look at what God has done with us. And I, I am impressed and moved and I want the type of community that Nehemiah was able to grow. And yeah, a wall. All kinds of people coming together with the varied resources, the varied abilities, the varied skills, the varied passions to accomplish something that needed to be done, but that they could not do as individuals. I was and I am inspired. Nehemiah 6.15, while I was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. It's a special day for them. That date is connected to the creation of the world. 
It's a special holiday for the Jewish people. It's a big deal that this is the date that God finished in two months minus Sabbaths. We are reading about this after it's done, and it still sounds, sounds crazy and complicated. So you imagine in advance. What we'll, as we involve more voices, imagine the complications, the things that will change. What will not change are the problems, problems that we're solving, the challenges that we're engaging in. Um, if you're here, this is a big week, and I'm going to kind of wrap up here. If you're here and you know you intend to pledge um, towards this campaign, this would be a really good week to do it. Now, this, at the end of this week, next, next Sunday, we will talk about where we are as a church and what that means, and, and, and I'll discuss more of that in a second. And we'll continue over the next weeks to take pledges, but where we are next week will speak a lot to us as a church as to what God is doing in us or not doing in us. What, God's, what God is accomplishing or not accomplishing. I want to encourage you. We had somebody mention last week. So you can go on the website and you, you can go to our church website. There's a big banner there. Click on that. And there'll be a little button over on the right that says pledge. Now we had a guy last week reference, hey, I was nervous to just click that button because I know you have my credit card number on file somewhere. And <laughs> like, if I click that, here we, I mean, and listen, this is the digital age. You don't just click stuff online. Am I right? And so he's rightfully... When you click that button, all that's going to do is tell us, this is what I believe God has laid on our family to give over the next three years. So it's a three-year pledge. You're saying over the next three years, we believe God has said, we need to be involved this amount for the next three years. So if you've not been praying or talking as a family about it, this week's a good week to do it. So to, to get that, so we'll have that communicated clearly next week. We can talk about that if that's where you are. Um, it does then, so once you pledge, then it will take you over to the giving section and give you the opportunity to decide how you want to do that. Do you want to do anything now? If not, do you want to do it all now? Fine. Do you want to do monthly? Fine. Like all those things are options out there. And if you have any questions, our business office is eager to talk with you about it. So that's, that's fine. But, but I don't want you to be afraid of that button. But if you prefer, we also have pledge cards around the building um, if that's easier for you, um, they also have the code that'll take you to the website, or you can fill this out and leave it in the office or put it in that little slot um, in the wall by the business office, and they'll, they'll communicate with you, and we'll get that in place so that we have that. If that's, if that's more comfortable for you to put it on paper, that's totally fine. They're in the back here and out at the information desk. We're happy to do that. I think we have still maybe a few dozen of the little information packets um, they're outdated. The minute we printed them, they were outdated. That's just how projects like this work. But there's some good information if you're interested in those. I think there's some back by the church office um, as well. And then make sure you're praying. All right. But I want you to come back for this. And those are people disconnected during all like, please. Okay, so you got that email. Follow through with that. I want to comment on something because someone asked this question, and I want to clarify. Somebody said, what if we don't pledge the whole amount? What if we don't bring in the whole amount? Does that worry you or does that scare you? And let me tell you with complete confidence, not in the slightest. And, and you may go like, oh, that can't be right. That's got to stress you out. It doesn't. It goes back to the beginning. I feel like it's my job to do my job. And then the other part is God's job. And that's, I, I, we can pledge a certain amount. My family can in, in faith. I have no idea how God's going to provide what we've pledged, but we could do it. And we'll, we'll go out there and trust God. If God wants to provide it, he can provide it. That's great. That's my responsibility. That's each of our responsibilities is that we say, hey, I, wanna, I, I'm, I, will, I will be faithful to pledge what God leads and the rest is God's problem and we'll take it at his guidance. Of course, we want to answer these challenges, but here's what's key. Keep this in mind. Buildings 
or not does not change who we are. It has no bearing on who we are or our identity um, or why we exist or even what we do. I am as confident as I can be that God will continue to do these things with us whether we build or not. Whether we put one brick up or not, the message and purpose of South Spring does not change with $1 or $10 million or any number that you can put behind a dollar sign. Buildings are merely an expression of method, and methods change all the time. The message and the identity of who we are will never change. That is who we are as a church, and buildings are not has no... That's why I feel no stress about this. There's plenty of work to do whether we build or not. And so if, if that's where we are next week, if we're ready to move forward with some of those things, excellent. That would be great and unifying for us as a church, I believe. If not, there's a lot of work for us to do. There's plenty for us to do in God's kingdom one way or another. So don't let your heart be troubled. Let each of us give faithfully as God leads, and we'll let the total number be his problem. Good? Stand with me if you will. All right, so we're going to have a little time of invitation if you, literally, if you want to pull out your phone and you're like, I know what we want to pledge and we need to do it now before I forget and another week goes by and I've never done it, that'd be fine for the invitation. Um, if you need someone to pray with you for anything, we'd love to pray with you here. You can pray out there or sing in a second. If you need someone to pray with you in the corner, that would be awesome as well. We would love for that to, to get to pray with you and hear of what God's teaching you. Whatever God has laid on your heart this morning about anything, primarily about his character and who he is and the power of his gospel to save us, that's who we're all about. And so um, if you've got anything like that that you want to talk about or pray about, do that. Um, the Spirit leads. If you've already been through our Welcome Home team and process and you're ready to come and, uh, and join this dysfunctional family um, this morning, you can do that as well during this time. And we would love to, uh, love to embrace you um, joining up with us. Um, okay, so let me wrap up with this um, from Proverbs 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. And your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats be bursting with wine. The very word of God.